following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Amen. Well, good morning, each and every one. How are you? Good to see you. I believe it's going to be summertime in South Carolina this coming week, right? In the 90s, and uh, not even June yet, but that's okay. Glad you're here. It was a good way to begin today as we uh, honored and uh, shared the joy of those who are graduating. Do you remember when you graduated? Yeah, was that a good day? No, it wasn't, was it? I tell you. <laughs> well, I like it. I sure did. I enjoyed school, but uh, this part of my life was over and headed on to the next one. And I want to encourage all those graduates uh, as they begin the next step of their journey as well and uh, what God has given to them. We're in the book of Acts this morning in Acts chapter 10, and I know we're skipping over uh, two to three chapters. We ended in chapter 7, uh, the first part where the first deacons were elected in the early church, but we skipped over Stephen, and we may go back to him, we'll see, but Stephen, man, what first martyr of the Christian church, first one to die as a Christian, to die for his faith. And the strength that he had, he was sort of in your face when confronted about that, and he didn't give way. And then, uh, that was in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and then in chapter 9, of course, Saul, who had been persecuting the church, and uh, was partly responsible for the death of Stephen. Uh, he was on his way to Damascus. You know the story. He, he was going to arrest more Christians, and then he was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is what I like. The Lord said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus wasn't on earth. <clears throat> he wasn't persecuting Jesus. But the church was on earth, and Jesus said, you persecute them, you're persecuting me. Anyway, Saul's life changed forever. He became Paul. And we know Paul wrote most of the New Testament. But we're going on into chapter 10 today. And we're going to look at Peter from just a moment because of uh, what we're going to be speaking on. And graduates, as you uh, enjoy the, the moment of your graduation now and as you make plans to attend school, work, whatever God has planned, and you're going in that direction, you know, I, I trust God has given you a dream. And I know he has a dream for you. And dreams come with joy and also comes with some hardship at times. Dreams also come with delay, so we have to be patient. No dream is fulfilled instantly. Sometimes when you wait too long, it begins to get discouraged and doubt and all those kind of things, so giants in the land, so to speak. But I want to share with you today what I believe for each and every one of us in here today as Christians is the greatest giant in our life right now. And that's the giant of culture. You can bring that up. Thank you. And we're going to look at culture and how Christian lives in it. Been a lot of changes in our culture. I mentioned that last week. So the question we have that I have sometimes when I'm confronted with something that I haven't experienced before is, now how do I handle this as a Christian? What are to be my thoughts as a Christian? How do I live as a Christian in this? And I believe for graduates, this will be your greatest challenge as you graduate and you really get out into the world. 
And for those of us who are graduates and we're in the world, it still continues to be a giant in our lives. I've seen some Christians that uh, they would aggressively change, try to change the culture. Others, other Christians, they'll try to escape and hide from all the changes that are taking place. And some Christians, they have no idea what to do. So if you're in any of those categories, then this message is for you, and that would include all of us. So let me just give a basic quick lesson on culture, all right? Culture can be defined as the ways in which persons relate to one another. And I believe God created human culture because he created each and every one of us. I believe we could also say John 3.16 this way, for God so loved the world that he... He gave his son. God so loved the world's culture that he gave his only son. And that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So let's get on into it then, okay? Let's get on to Peter in chapter 10. And the first thing I want to do is look at is when his world, when Peter's world was rocked and the times that our world is rocked as well. And let's see what, Peter did when the culture around him had a really, really big shift in his life. Peter was raised as a devout Jew. He was a fisherman by trade. He was religiously and politically conservative. Probably in his day, he was to the far right, okay, as we would uh, translate it now. He lived all of his life by the regulations of the Old Testament law. Even to what he ate, he ate kosher, strict dietary uh, regimen there that the Old Testament uh, recommended. He, like other devout Jews of his time, kept his distance from Gentiles. And Jews had a term that they referred to Gentiles as dogs. Dogs. Dogs in that time, there were some who were pets, but most of the dogs that you ran across in Jewish culture, even in the world of that time, they roamed the streets. They were dirty, mangy, scavenger kind of animals. So people really didn't want them. So he referred to Gentiles as dogs. Most Jews absolutely detested the Romans who had conquered and now ruled their country. They occupied the promised land. Acts 10 is a story of a Gentile Roman officer. He's a centurion. He was over, it could be defined as either a hundred soldiers or a thousand soldiers. But anyway, he was an officer in the Roman army. His name was Cornelius. He was a centurion. In the New Testament, centurions are mentioned three times. You can do a little word study on that this afternoon. Each centurion that the New Testament mentions was a good guy. And Cornelius was too. He was a pagan. He wasn't Jew. He wasn't a Christian, but he was God-fearing. He was a seeker of God, of the true God. He gave money to the synagogue there in, in Caesarea. And although he was a very good man, again, he was not a Jew. He was not a Christian. Let me read Acts 10, 1 through 6. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Today, we would say the 82nd Airborne or something like that. 
He and all his family were devout and God feared. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa, this town, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with another man called Simon who is a tanner whose house is by the sea. So let me interrupt here. It's probably hard to translate the emotions of this story into modern feelings. For Peter and for those like him in this story, this was pretty far-fetched, I would think. How could anyone, Peter would think, how could anyone be a Gentile? How could anyone especially be a Roman soldier and be described as devout and God-fearing? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And then why would an angel show up to a pagan? Why would he come and speak to him? And the theology here seems a little messed up because Cornelius calls the angel Lord. And God is responding to Cornelius, not so much for his faith as for the good works that he was doing. You know, as a pastor, and you probably have as well, I've heard Republicans say that a person cannot be a Democrat and be a Christian. And the other side, I've heard some say, some Democrats say, that no one can be a true Republican and be a Christian at the same time. For people like Peter, it was unimaginable that a Roman officer could fear the true God and then win a visit from a real angel. But that was just the beginning, okay? Picking up of verse 9 in Acts chapter 10. About noon the following day, as the men that Cornelius sent to Joppa to get Peter to bring him back to his house, as they were approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open, and something like, now get this, something like a large sheet being let down to earth by four corners. In the sheet, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds, things that Jews were not supposed to eat. Then a voice told Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean or against the Old Testament law. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep then was taken back into heaven. This was more than a culture shift for Peter, I dare say. This was more like an earthquake to him, you know. An angel appeared to him, basically told him to eat a pork chop, maybe a slice of ham, a barbecue lizard, and a side of crow, all right? <laughs> that would like most of us being asked to eat horse or porcupine or something like that, okay? Just the thought was enough to make 
uh, Peter's stomach roll over. But when God speaks from heaven, to you, you would think that it would be enough for anyone. But it took God three times to show the same vision to Peter before he was convinced. When we keep reading Acts 10, if you were to go home today to read the rest of the chapter, you would see that Peter was told to travel to Caesarea and visit the home of Cornelius. Some guys were coming to get him at that time. And when the vision ended and Peter woke up, there was a knock at the door, just like that. There were the guys, okay? Devout Jews at that time rarely, rarely, rarely entered the house of a Gentile. When Jesus was arrested and he was tried by the Jews, they took him to Pilate, and rather than going into Pilate's uh, uh, palace and seeing him, they made Pilate come to the door because they weren't going to go in. He was a dog, okay? So rarely did they enter a Gentile's home, especially a Roman officer's house. That would be tantamount to collaborating with the enemy. But Peter, to his credit, he did what he was told. He went to Caesarea. He went to the home of Cornelius. He walked and entered into his house. He shared the gospel of Jesus Christ as he felt led to do. And guess what? Cornelius, his family, all those who were gathered there, friends, servants, all those of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit came down. It was the second Pentecost. If you remember Pentecost from chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down. All the people in that room became Christians. We need to say hooray. You know, not only were they saved, but because of that, you and I are sitting here today. You see, up until that time, the Christian church was to Jews. Only Jews were worshiping Jesus. Only Jews believed that he was the Messiah. But now God is showing, hey, Jesus is not only for Jews. He's for the whole world. John 3, 16, for God so loved what? The world, the world. So the door to faith was open to the Gentiles, all right? They received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. They went directly from pagan Gentiles to Christians without becoming a Jew. And Cornelius, he remained a Gentile. He couldn't change that, Okay. He continued as a Roman officer, and he continued to live in his non-Jewish culture that he was in. He didn't change his culture when he became a believer, for Peter was way beyond Old Testament uh, uh, teachings. Peter stepped way out of his comfort zone that day, and it convinced him. And he had to come back to Jerusalem and defend his actions and what happened and defend the fact that Gentiles now can become Christians. I tell you what, I'm impressed with Peter. I really am. I've always liked him, but this story raises my respect for him. Because why? Change is hard, is it not? Change is hard. It's hard to reach out to people you don't like very much. But Peter was so committed to Jesus, he was so obedient to him that he did whatever Jesus told him to do, whether it was comfortable or not. So that brings me to my first major point today, and that is living as a Christian in a changing culture. Living as a Christian in a changing culture. Our culture shifts 
are a bit like what Peter faced. We deal with materialism. We deal with technology and how it changes constantly. We deal with sexual orientation. We're dealing with globalization. We're dealing with stress, with busyness, with social media, a thousand other cultural changes. And the specifics are different, but the challenges, they're still the same. The same thing that Peter confronted. How can I be a Christian how can I be a follower of Christ? How can I be a devoted disciple in a changing culture? So let's make a quick list of ideas, okay, about how to act like a Christian when the world around us is shifting and changing. This is the platform we're going to launch from right now. Number one idea, let's start with the, the list with saying we need to love like God loves, loving like God. God so loved the world that he sent his son. We know that. As Christians, as Christians, we are to love our world and the cultures in it just as God does. That doesn't mean we approve of them or the things they do. God knows the sin of the world better than any of us does, but he loves the world nevertheless. And as Christians, we want to love our culture as God loves the culture. Secondly, here's a biggie. We must trust God. We got to trust him. As Christians, we believe that God is in charge of history. Do you believe that? Do you believe he has a goal in which he's taken the world and all of history to? I do. He is never surprised. Nothing is out of control. God can and he will handle everything that happens in the world. He's in charge of the war in Ukraine. God always does a great job. As Christians, we put our hope in Jesus Christ. We don't put all of our hope in political parties. We don't put all of our hopes in election outcomes. We don't put our hopes all in, in the Supreme Court decisions or the stock market or scientific discoveries or constitutional amendments or military power or medical research. All those things are fine and good, but it doesn't claim, they don't claim all of our trust. We believe in Jesus. We trust Jesus. We trust him. And as Christians, we don't rush to judgment on cultural changes. For example, the pandemic that we came from, came through, and I pray it's over. You remember during that time? Some believed it was nothing major. Others feared with their lives. Some thought, I need to mask. Others thought, there's no need to mask. Some thought I need to get the vaccinations. Others refused the vaccinations. Some were fearful. Others were brave. Some churches were actually divided over the stance that Christians should take. And when cultural predictions come our way, we may listen, but we don't act like there's no God. We don't rush to judgment. We trust God. We remember this verse, Christians, all things work together for good to who? To Christians, to Christians, to those God has called. Third, my main point that this morning, well, third on the list, let me finish this list first, is that we know biblical values. 
we know what the Bible says. When culture is shifting, when we're faced with culture shifts, when change is around, we need a reference point, don't we? We need a reference point for stability, and we need a reference point for discernment. I need some wisdom for this. That reference point for Christians is the Bible, God's Word. The better we know the Bible, the better prepared we are to think and to act like Christian when we face culture change. That's why it's vitally important that everyone in this room have a time, a quiet time, where it's just us and God. We read the Bible and we pray. Our list of biblical values can be long, okay? But there are unchanging divine standards by which we seek to live. Some examples are God is sovereign. He controls it all. Life is sacred to God. Truth is essential to God. Love is primary to God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ must be advanced. It must be shared and it must be lived. It's important that we distinguish between biblical values and personal preferences. We can have very strong opinions about certain topics and things. Hairstyles, immigration quotas, political parties, masks, vaccinations, style of music, the legal language of America, and, and more, many more. But these should not be equaled with biblical values. All those are personal preferences. And certainly, the Bible should influence our opinions and our preferences. And all of our opinions should reflect well on Jesus Christ. But let's distinguish between biblical values and personal preferences. Let the Holy Spirit be our teacher. When it comes to cultural changes, don't let the primary source of influence, it's okay to listen and to watch, but don't let the primary source of our, our influence be our favorite news show or a website or a blog or a political newsletter or a TV commentator. Jesus said this in John 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, he said, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll take up residence in your heart when you're a Christian. He will teach you all things. And he will remind you of everything, of everything I have said to you. And then the result of that, Jesus said, is peace I leave with you, my peace. Not peace that the world gives, but my peace. So therefore, if you have my peace, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Boy, that's good words, isn't it? In addition, we should affirm what is good, but also confront what is wrong. We should confront sin in our culture because Christians, to me, they're like the Old Testament prophets, okay? They were the voice of God who spoke about the sins of society. We can write letters. We can make phone calls. We can vote. We can contribute or withhold money. We can attend public meetings. We can speak out on righteousness, God's righteousness. However, however, we must speak 
the truth, the Bible says, in love. Not many people like an angry, mean, agitated critic. Our greatest influence may be in affirming what is good. And there is good things in American society and American culture, don't you think? When you go to a movie and it promotes Christian values, we need to tell our friends about it. You need to go see that movie. When a politician takes a stand for morality, we need to speak about him or maybe even write a letter of gratitude to him. When you know of someone who, in your neighborhood who has a party and nobody gets drunk, maybe you need to go by and help him clean up. Too many people criticize what is wrong, but they're silent about what is good. I want you to imagine the influence of 10,000 Christians affirming what is good in our culture and thereby swaying culture even if just a little bit, in the right direction. Now my third and final point. It's more about values, okay? Values are that important, Christian values. Graduates, you'll have time to watch this program now. It's the price of right, is right, and it comes on at 11 o'clock during the week, Okay? And on that program, you know, Bob Barker back in the day and Drew Carey now, contestants are said to come on down and they'll go nuts running down there. Okay? And then they come up and one game is they have to determine the value of merchandise on display, all right? And if you know what you're doing, if you're a contestant and you know what you're doing, you will say that a bottle of spaghetti costs uh, spaghetti sauce cost around $3. And that new car over there, that, that, that new Dodge, that's $30,000, all right? But if you were to go up there and get them reversed, you'll not only lose the game, but you'll show all of the United States just how stupid you are. <laughs> you know? After all, what kind of person thinks that spaghetti sauce will cost $30,000 or you can buy a fully loaded Dodge for $3. Hmm? Sometimes the contestants are asked to put four or five items in order from, from the cheapest to the cost list, such as a car, a can of peas, a microwave oven, a trip to, to Tahiti. It's a game of values deciding what each one is worth. Now, imagine playing the same game, but where the items to be valued are telling the truth, winning the lottery, loving God, or being promoted at work. What would you choose in those? Is it more valuable to love God or to be promoted at work? Most of the time we discuss values in terms of behavior. But we need to distinguish that behavior is what we do and how we do it. Values explain why we did that. Values explain what we do. 
And that includes all of our thoughts and our attitudes and our decisions, all of that inner self in there, which result in behavior. And although we can't see values, nevertheless, they are very real and they're powerful and they determine how every one of us acts. What's valuable to you? What are your list of values? You have one. Because there's a sense where everyone has values. It's just that we put a different price tag on the same things. One person will lie to get a job while another person tells the truth, even when it means losing a job. There was a deacon in my last church before I retired. He was a top executive, and the company had plants all over the country, and he would fly to each plant occasionally and go in there, and he ruled the roost. And he went on a, a staff retreat, whatever it was, there was not only a lot of drinking going on, but it was being done at a strip club. And he said it as good as he could. I appreciate the offer, but I can't go. Why? My faith would not allow me to go. I'm a Christian. The next week he was fired. Values. One person would never have sex outside of marriage at any price, while a prostitute would sell her body to anyone for a certain amount. Everyone has values. They're just different. What we value is what we love. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, here are the top values. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love him with everything you have. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, value God, value your neighbor. And God has already told us his values. Again, they're in the book. They're written in the Bible. God values justice. God values love. God values truth. God values forgiveness. God values keeping of commitments. Again, open your Bible, see the prices. Go for what God says is a value. Avoid the cheap stuff. Caleb, you mentioned a saying that's written on the wall in the youth room. Uh, I have it in a, in a different way. You only have one life to live. It's like a piece, like a dime, like a quarter, like a dollar. Spend it well. You only have one time that you could spend it. There's a strange little story, if I could take you to the Old Testament for just a moment, okay? It's in 1 Samuel 13, 19 through 22. Saul was king of Israel. He and his son Jonathan commanded the army that was going into battle with uh, the Philistines. But in 1 Samuel 13, it reads this. But not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, their sickles, all of them sharpened. 
The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, when the two armies met, not a soldier in the Israelite army had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only King Saul and his son Jonathan. And I, I read that and I said, how in the world did Israel get into this position? Well, probably during peacetime, it didn't matter. So what if we don't have our own blacksmiths? It's cheaper to take them down to the Philistines and have them sharpen them for us. But when peace turned to war, the Israelite army couldn't fight because the enemy had all the blacksmiths to keep the swords and the spears sharpened. And that's a parable for the times we live in. If Christians and the church ignore the culture around them and they leave values for society to define, man, we're stuck. We're stuck when conflict arises. It's good to get along with our neighbors, but we cannot allow them to control the values by which we live. Only this does. Jesus put it, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Let me remind you, politics can fail. Rebellions can be suppressed. Money runs out. Elections are lost. But living as a Christian can't be stopped. It's revolutionary. Even death can't stop it. One of the early church fathers in the fourth century wrote, The blood of the martyrs for those who died for their faith in the Roman Empire. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians Rome martyred, the more people became Christians. Why? Because they lived as Christians. And they died as Christians. And they turned the treachery of their enemies to triumph. But more than that, someone else wrote this about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire from the time of Jesus until the fourth century. The Roman Empire was a place where there was great good. There was Roman peace that they maintained all over the empire. There were Roman roads that stretched everywhere over the empire and connected it. There was the Roman economy. They had the roads and the ships for vibrant economy. But also there was the terrible state of the culture with widespread slavery. Over half of the population in Rome were slaves. There were rampant abortions, widespread divorce, murder of girl babies as a means of birth control, the devaluing of women, brutal pandemics that often took a third of the population of of Roman cities. There were mass migrations. There were forced uh, repopulations. There were injustices, corruption, poverty, and I think above all, brutality. Just look at the games they went to. They weren't football. They were gladiators who fought to the death. 
There were injustices. It was an unhappy and a tough place. Most of the Christians in the early church were poor slaves who were unable to vote and were politically powerless. What Christians did, you know, this is what they did. They lived as Christians. They behaved Christianly. They didn't abort their babies. They valued women. They stuck with their marriages. They rescued and raised abandoned babies. And when pandemics struck, there were always a lot of Christians that didn't leave the cities. They stayed and took care of the sick. They helped the poor. They worked hard. They were honest. And they changed the empire. It took 300 years before paganism died and Christianity triumphed. How we live, friends, is important to God. Graduates, it's beneficial to us, and it will transform others. So do not be frightened nor shaped by the changes in our culture. Don't try to escape the culture, but be the representatives of Jesus Christ to transform lives, to transform our culture. Live good and godly lives full of faith in Jesus Christ and trust in God so that we will do for our country and our culture what our earlier Christian brothers and sisters did in theirs. A story I'll end with, a true story. Abortion's a hot topic now. Eileen Cronin-Noe illustrates the kind of triumph over circumstances. In the 1960s, a drug was manufactured. It was a sedative that was prescribed to pregnant women. But in over 8,000 cases, there were birth defects from the drug. 8,000 cases in Europe, only 20 in the United States, and Eileen was one of them. She was born with only a portion of her upper right leg, and her left leg had only a small, un underdeveloped calf below her knee. And the response of Eileen's parents, it reflected their values, and it shaped her daughter's life. Many lawsuits were filed, but they didn't participate in that. Let me read her words to you. For my parents who did not have this knowledge of what the drug would do, okay? Abortion was not an option, and it wouldn't have been even if they had been aware of my condition. My parents believed it was God's de decision, and they were content with that decision. And their belief has led me to accept and even prefer things for what they are. Many people may find this difficult to believe, she wrote. They feel lucky that, uh, uh, I, mean, I can't pronounce this, this word, but uh, uh, procedures available to screen out babies born with less severe deformities than mine. That thought frightens me because I know that procedure can't tell any patients what kind of child they will have. It only points out the disability the child will have. That procedure could never have told my mother that I would have artistic talent. 
It could never have told my mother I would have a high intellectual capacity, a sharp wit, and an outgoing personality. And the last thing that procedure would tell her is that I would be physically attractive. Eileen's parents' values informed and controlled their response to circumstances they never would have chosen for their baby girl. Eileen tells of the difficult experiences that she had, especially the cruelty of other children as she grew up. But she walks tall with artificial legs. She grew up taking ballet lessons, playing softball, dating, and fully enjoying high school social life. As a young adult, she graduated from college and she moved on to receive a master's degree. And she married and became a mother. Circumstances never tell the whole story of our lives for any of us. Most of our lives, our biographies, they are written from the values we hold and how we respond to the circumstances we face. Imagine, just imagine, the impact on this nation, our culture, and this generation if Christians just simply lived like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the day, and I thank you for our graduates. I thank you for each and every one of us here today. Lord, it's wonderful to live in the United States and the freedoms we enjoy. It's good to be called an American. But in the scheme of life and in the face of eternity, how valuable it is to be known as a Christian. Father, my prayer is simple today that your Holy Spirit would take this message, open our hearts, implant it in there so that we might better live as Jesus lived. To love you and to love others and to stand by the values that you wrote in your book. Help us in that, I pray, Jesus. In your holy name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.